Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So exciting to be in a conference that's focusing on evangelism and discipleship. I think the great premise of our conference here is that in a clear gospel, salvation is an instantaneous event, of course, and discipleship is a lifetime process. And that's something that we've spent many, a lot of ink spilling uh, and a lot of time talking about and developing in conferences. And um, uh, after all, the name of the conference is not evangelism is discipleship, it's evangelism and discipleship, and we notice that there is a distinction. So that's kind of a great premise behind what we're doing here. And now, though, that we have uh, come to the point where we can appreciate uh, discipleship and its differences from salvation, eternal salvation, now that we've come to that point, I think it's a good time to pause and appreciate just what discipleship is as a spiritual journey, as an experience with God, as Jody would would say and has said, and uh, look along the way uh, and look at the biblical data to see what we might be able to gain from our observations. A week from today, uh, I will embark on a four-day trip and take 17 others with me, 17 men and boys. We will be going down the Devil's River in Texas, two days spent on the river privilege and pleasure to do that as part of my pastoral duties, and I'm the only one that's been there before. Uh, The Devil's River is a very fascinating river, very interesting Texas river. One of the reasons it's an interesting river in Texas is because it actually has running water in it. If you've ever driven across Texas in the summertime, you you know, you see a sign that says you're crossing this river and you're kind of waiting and it's kind of like clouds without rain. Uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating river because it's always got water, comes up out of the ground. It just The river just appears below Sonora and flows down to Del Rio on the border, and it just kind of appears out of the ground. So the water is clear, it's cool, it's kind of the clean, some of the cleanest water in Texas, they say you can drink from it. And not only that, but the country where it flows, it's a vast wilderness area where Texas is really, you know, most people think of Texas, which is just desert country with nothing there. And uh, so that's the kind of country we'll be in, and we'll be there for two days, and from the time that we launch to the time that we take out, there is no really other place to get out, and we will not see anybody for for those two days. It's the last wilderness river in Texas, and uh, we're just excited about making that trip. I made it once before nine years ago, and um, uh, so I'm a little bit familiar with it. You know, you have your nice uh, fast water, but it's not too challenging for us who are um, uh, greenhorns at this canoe business. And, uh, but there are a couple places that are dangerous, and you actually want to get out and portage your canoe around. There's a 12-foot fall. It's the largest natural waterfall in Texas. You want to be sure to walk around that. And um, there's, there's long stretches of a mile or so where you really have to paddle, and you hope that you don't have a south wind because the water is not moving you at all. You've got to do all the moving. And then there's areas, you know, that are really easy going. And down near the bottom of our trip, there's going to be big areas of marshy-looking reeds where you can take one branch or another, and you kind of have to be sure you're, you know where you're going or you get stuck in the weeds and have to backtrack. And, uh, but the whole thing, uh, you know, no matter what challenges or even danger presents itself, it's just going to be a, a lot of fun and exciting. I just use that as an analogy 
uh, of discipleship. Isn't it quite the same way? Very exciting. It's full of uh, easy times. It's, it's got its slow periods. It's got its excitement. It's got its dangers. Uh, it's got its trials. It's got times where sometimes you go down the wrong, take a wrong turn, and you have to straighten yourselves out and back up a little bit. One thing we know is that disciples are made and not born. Uh, discipleship is a process. It is a journey. It is a direction that we head. It is an orientation, and it is a commitment. When we look at the words, follow me or come after me in the Gospels, and I would challenge you to do this study on your own, you'll find, I believe, that every single use of those words, follow me or come after me, refers to the relationship that Jesus had with people who would follow him in a relationship of discipleship. Now, that's different from when he says, come to me. When he says, come to me, I think that is often an evangelistic invitation. So uh, as I studied these, I came across some interesting things in, in the life of Peter I wanted to share with you. Uh, but also, what really motivated the study was to see if there was a difference in discipleship and uh, justification <clears throat> or eternal salvation and its presentation in the Gospels. And there's some things I've come to understand and uh, that are crucial to understanding, I think, discipleship. First of all, that uh, we've, we've said this many times, if you confuse discipleship with the gospel itself, uh, you have a very confusing gospel because you have a gospel with many conditions, conditions like deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, hate your father, mother, brother, sisters, etc. And uh, it would just confuse somebody terribly to say to them that you have to do these things in order to become a Christian. Uh, another thing that we should understand is that when we, if we do confuse discipleship with uh, eternal salvation in our gospel presentation, we really undermine the whole discipleship process. Because I believe the discipleship process is built on a foundation of grace, grace that assures us of our relationship with God. And it is on the basis of that assurance and acceptance with God that we have the freedom and the liberty to grow in that relationship and to express our gratitude and love back to him who loves us with a love that will not let us go. So it will undermine discipleship if we are to confuse these issues and, and put doubts in people's minds about whether they are uh, really believers or not. And then, of course, I think it would be terrible for people to just miss the experiences in this exciting journey of discipleship by having to wonder whether or not they are saved to having to wonder whether or not God has really accepted them because they've taken a wrong turn or lost their way in the reeds of life's experiences? Or how do they handle a failure? Does that mean that they are no longer acceptable to God, that they would no longer be called a disciple? Uh, but with the perspective I think the Gospels bring us, we can see that uh, discipleship is a process, and in that process, God can even use failure and setbacks in such a way that we can, maybe not at the time, but we can at some point appreciate what God is doing in that situation and how it has brought us into a deeper experience of Him. It's hard to study discipleship in the, in the Gospels without coming across a very well-known character named Peter. And I really believe that the Scriptures present Peter as a model of the typical disciple. And I would uh, probably, uh, if I asked you today, how many of you have identified yourselves with Peter to some degree or another in the past, I think we'd see most hands go up. How many times have you heard someone in your church say, boy, you know, I really appreciate that guy, Peter. He really, 
he really experienced some of the things I am or vice versa, you know. People say that all the time. And that, along with my study of his life, got me to thinking, you know what? I think that's not an accident. I think that God has actually designed Peter to be the model of a typical disciple in such a way that we could learn from his life and experiences. So I think it is more than a coincidence. I think it is by design. When we look at the evidence in the Gospels, we see that every time the disciples are listed in three different lists, Peter is always the first one listed. He's given priority there in those lists. When we uh, look at the disciples and their activities, we notice that he is the spokesman for the group. Peter always seems to be saying what the group is thinking. Not only that, but he always seems to be saying what we're thinking, doesn't he? And he was one of Jesus' inner three, we know, with James and John. And so he was a leader of the leaders, and he emerged as the leader of even the inner three, it seems. And then fourthly, his experiences trace those experiences of a typical disciple. The Gospels were careful to to show us Peter before he was actually a believer in John chapter 1. And then we are given glimpses of his life all along his journey of discipleship until in John chapter 21, we have one of the last glimpses of any of the disciples, John and his encounter with uh, the post-resurrection Jesus Christ where he commissions him to ministry. So we have these experiences in his life that would mirror the, the experiences of a typical disciple. Well, let's talk about that. Peter's experiences as a disciple. I think there's some principles we'll find when we look at his life, and um, we can learn a lot from Peter's life. I mean, he's all through the Gospels, and we can draw a lot of principles from it. What I wanted to do is focus in on those passages or those episodes of his life where the words, follow me, or he followed, or something similar was actually stated or very implicit in the episode. And I think by looking, I've identified six of those, and I'm not saying that's maybe even all of them, but six of them where I think we can learn some good lessons that give us an idea of what a journey of discipleship should reflect. I call them episodes in his life, but you know what? I kind of like the word passages better. Passages, not in the sense of Bible passages, you know, but passages in the sense of kind of a crucial entryway into another experience, like a doorway into a whole new um, experience of God and discipleship. Passage of a young Jewish boy into adulthood is bar mitzvah. Uh, A Messiah young man passes into uh, a warrior status by killing a lion. Um, We have our passages in culture and society, and um, it seems that Peter was kind of put through these kind of steps or doorways at certain points in his life where Jesus challenged him to follow. The Panama Canal is almost 51 miles long. It connects the Caribbean with um, the Pacific, Uh, but it doesn't do it very easily. It has to, of course, go up before it can go back into the Pacific. In order to do that, they accomplish that with a set of locks, a lock, of course, a gate that you close and the water's filled in, the boat rises to the next level and is able to go on. I think that's a good illustration also of what a passage is. It's a point where where God raises our experience or our awareness or our commitment to a level where we're ready to go on to the next leg of the journey. I like to say it this way. At each stage in a disciple's life, a disciple is challenged to become more of a disciple. God doesn't let us rest. And when we look at the Gospels and the episodes in Peter's life, 
we see, I think, especially in those passages that either mention or imply following, we see Peter constantly being challenged to a greater commitment and discipleship. And I just want to discuss six principles that I find in Peter's life for the making of a disciple. Certainly there are more principles, uh, but these six will show us not only that salvation is definitely distinct from what we call discipleship, but what the experience of discipleship entails. The first comes from John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, you find uh, Peter in what we might call a curious stage or a seeking stage. He's brought to Jesus. You know the story by his brother Andrew. Andrew, it is said, had followed Jesus in verse 37. So there's the word. And uh, he invites his brother Peter to come and see. And Peter, perhaps just out of curiosity, comes to find out what Andrew's talking about. And uh, Jesus says to him in verse 42, when they meet, that you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas. He says to Simon, which means hearer, you will be called the stone, the rock. Peter must have been scratching his head at this time. We could understand that. But when Jesus saw Peter, he saw not only who he was, but what he could become. I think there's a principle there for us. That disciples should have a vision of what they can become. You might be able to reflect back to a period in your life where somebody believed in you more than you believed in yourself. And you may find that that's the very reason that you are where you are today. I know I can identify times like that in my own life. A pastor who uh, took me under his arm and said, you know, it's something I think I want, would like you to, to head up our youth ministry in our new church. Me? You really think I can do that? It gave me something to live up to. I remember the first sermon I ever preached, and I wish I didn't, but I remember it. <laughs> I remember the little old lady who came up afterwards and uh, in a prophetic tone of voice and attitude, she says, you're going to be a preacher someday. Took all the faith I had to believe her. Still working on it. But you don't forget moments like that when people believe in you. When people see something of what you can become and believe in you more than yourself. On the other hand, I'm greatly rebuked by memories of times I've prejudged people. And I said, nothing will ever become of that person. You ever have that kind of situation happen to you? The alcoholic, he'll never straighten out his life. The marriage, that'll never get any better. You know, they're, they're a waste of time. And some of these very people that I've given up on, God hasn't, luckily, and they're now leaders in churches that I could name. Somewhere, Peter went from being curious to being convinced that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. And we're not exactly told about his salvation experience. By the time we get to John chapter 2, verse 11, it tells us that disciples believe there in the wedding at Cana. And in John chapter 6, we see uh, Peter confessing Jesus and saying, yes, we know that you are the Son of God. So we know that his salvation came. I think it is certainly implied in this passage, and I think Jesus certainly saw it. So the first principle I think we see in Peter's life is that we need to give people a vision of what they can become. See people as God sees them. Our people in churches, as Kim testified this morning, many of them are beaten down. I've never had anyone in life tell them 
that they're really good, that they're acceptable to God, or that they can do something well. They've been beaten down by the world or by parents or by classmates who've made fun of them. And they just need a little glimpse of hope of a better life. What a life of following Jesus could be like. They need someone to believe in them. A second principle I get from a very well-known story about the disciples as they fished on the Sea of Galilee. It's in both Mark uh, 1 and Matthew chapter 4. My favorite version is Mark for a reason that I'll mention to you in just a moment. And this isn't uh, the same event as in John chapter 1. We have different locations. We have a lot of differences. And I could spend a lot of time developing the differences because, and, and sometimes we need to do that because there are those who say, well, this experience of uh, Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There are some who say that was a call to salvation. And we want to say, no, that, that is not a call to salvation. This is not John chapter 1. There are many differences there, and there are problems with that. So it's important to see the differences. But you know the story very well and how the, the Peter, uh, Andrew, and James and John are fishing, and Jesus walks by and invites them to follow and become fishers of men. The reason I like the Mark version so well is because he says, I will make you to become fishers of men. It seems he emphasizes the process a little bit more, make you to become a little bit more than Matthew does, and that's good because he uh, takes the responsibility for that upon him, himself. But I think what the passage shows us is that there is a familiarity that exists between Peter already and Jesus. For him to, to leave so quickly and follow him shows that there was some familiarity. Uh, I doubt that that would happen in a complete you know, stranger situation. But the principle we learn there is that Jesus gets them going early in what they should be doing the rest of their life. Disciples should adopt a life purpose of evangelism. That is what Jesus said in one of these earliest episodes that we see in the life of his disciples. Disciples should adopt a purpose of evangelism, which should become a purpose for living. The only thing we can't do in heaven, right? You've heard that many times. Born to reproduce, Dawson Trotman would say. But notice it is a process, and so it involves discipleship. I will make you to become fishers of men. The responsibility is Jesus's. He said, I will make you to become. It is a process. I'm glad Jesus spoke so clearly and so simply to these fishermen. One of the great things about the Devil's River that I didn't mention to you is that uh, it is one of the best smallmouth fisher, smallmouth bass fisheries in all of the country. Um, and if, many of you that know about smallmouth bass fishing know that you, if you want to catch smallmouth bass, you usually go up north to cold water. But here in the middle of the desert of Texas, you have one of the best smallmouth bass fisheries in the whole country because the water is so clean and cool. So in the middle of the desert, you're fishing for a cold water fish and you, you can catch 50 to 100 a day. I grew up in an area where I fished for smallmouth all my life, and I caught my biggest one here in Texas. It's amazing. So I'm just a simple fisherman. I like things put in simple terms, I guess is what I'm trying to say. One of my favorite quotes about fishing is, uh, there's a fine line between fishing and standing on the shore like an idiot. And all the wives said, amen, right? I don't expect them to ever understand. But as Jody said, we're worshiping in those situations. 
Fishing for me was a process. I learned it slowly. I learned it from my dad. He was a fanatic fisherman. He was fishing when I was born, in fact. Those were the old days when you didn't go to the hospital. He went fishing instead. And I remember well the mornings that he would wake me up. Growing up in Maryland, he'd wake me up before the sun came up and rouse me out of bed. And you want to go fishing? Sure, you know. Stumble into the car, sleep all the way there, scramble out at the Potomac River, climb out on the rocks with him in the cold, and just sit there and watch him fish because I was too small to handle the gear. He'd catch the fish, and I'd get excited. I might help him net one. Then maybe a year or two later, he'd he'd hook one, and I'd and he'd say, "Hey, you want to reel it in?" Boy, did I! You know, reel that thing in. You feel that thing tug, and you're hooked for life. And been doing it ever since. Now I have a young son. A few years ago, he's old enough to hold a pole. So we're down in the, the beach, off the beach of uh, Mustang Island, down on the coast in Texas, and I hook onto a big old redfish out on one of the the piers. And this redfish decides to take off for Havana. It's all I can do to hold him back. And I look at my son there, and I say, hey, Clay, come here a second. Here, hold this for a while. Almost pulls him in, but he's hooked for life, too. That's what discipleship is. It's a process. It's following. He can't do everything, but now at 12 years old, he just about can. He's a good fisherman. Jesus is the one responsible to train us. He will make us to become fishers of men. And what he's given the disciples here, I see, is, is the purpose that they ought to be make a priority for the rest of their lives in the short time on this earth. And something that they should make a priority no matter what they are doing. Bringing others to Christ is a supreme purpose in life no matter what we do. Now, there are some here who have said, I'm going to do it full time. And God has led that way. And as pastors, perhaps we fall in that category as well. There are many, though, in our churches who need to be encouraged to do that no matter where they are. Their mission field is their workplace or their classroom. I know a man, he, he retired. Uh, he went to our church and he retired he, as a scientist and he moved to New Mexico, uh, near Alamosa, where they have the government labs and so forth. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need work. He went in and he applied for work. Why? Because he wanted to share the gospel with those scientists. He felt that was a group that he could reach. He saw evangelism as a priority in his life, and he was going to fish wherever he was. So get people started in evangelism early as disciples. Let them know that that's the purpose, a purpose for their life. It gives them something to get out of bed for in the morning. You know, we have a similar story in Luke chapter 5, and... It appears similar at first anyway, because it's another fishing story. I gravitate towards these. But uh, in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, another principle emerges from another fishing story. Now, in this story, we have a different situation. Jesus is preaching. uh, I'm sorry. uh, Jesus is, again, um, on the shore. But there were two boats there, and Peter and the fishermen were fishing. And you remember the story that Jesus tells Peter to launch out into the deep, verse 4, and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter says, you know, in a nice way, Lord, you really don't know anything about fishing, but okay, we'll entertain you. And they caught a great number of fish. And as a result of that, it tells us that Peter uh, repented in such a way that he, he says, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he, because it says he was astonished at the catch of fish. Why was he 
so disturbed? Why was he repenting? What was he repenting of? The fact that he really didn't believe Jesus knew anything about fishing? Could be. The context would certainly support that. Perhaps the fact that Jesus had called him before to become a fisher of men and he was still just fishing for fish and hadn't really gotten the big picture, fully submitted to Jesus and his purpose for his life. Can't prove that. I have my suspicions that that might be behind Peter's repentance. Not totally subjected himself to this call for repentance. And one of the clues for that is at the very end where he says in verse 10, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. You see, the promise is a little different. I will make you to become fishers of men, but now you will catch men. He talked about training before. Now he talks about on-the-job training or practical experience or actually doing it. So I see a progression there. And not only that, but in verse 11, they forsook all and followed him. If you go back and look at Matthew 4 and Mark 1, Peter, it says, left his nets. But here it says he left all. So I see a progression in Peter's journey of discipleship. Jesus has challenged him to become more of a disciple by devoting more of his time and more of his energy to what is near to his own heart, to get his message out, to reach people with his gospel. What was the lesson that Jesus, that, that we learn here, that Peter learned, that disciples should learn to trust and obey the Lord? Trust him to take that step in fishing. Trust him to take that step with your life, to leave security behind, to leave what is familiar behind and to follow him wholeheartedly. Only an obedient disciple is a useful disciple. It's a lesson that we all have to learn as disciples. I have a love-hate relationship with my chocolate lab named Belle. I bought her to keep me from jumping in ice-cold water to retrieve ducks. And uh, she does a fine job because I put a lot of time into training her. I trained her to wait until I said go, and then to come, and when I say fetch, she fetches, and if I need her to stop, uh, e even in the water, there's a signal, she stops. We often entertain people when they come to our house, we'll put her down one end of the yard, and I'll be down the other, and the kids will all call her and say, come on, come on, Belle, come on, Belle, and she won't come. She won't come until she hears my voice. I say, Belle, come, and she comes. Very obedient dog. Because a dog that's not obedient is useless to me. Frankly, I'm not going to spend the cost of dog food on something like that. A dog that doesn't listen isn't useful in the field. In fact, a water dog in Texas that doesn't listen, you know what they call it? Alligator bait. Going to get into trouble, is going to get lost, and going to end up alligator bait. Any dog can follow. A useful dog obeys. Peter was following to a degree. He hadn't learned some of the lessons I think Jesus wanted him to learn about obedience and total submission. And that's what he's learning in this situation. And I think that was somewhat behind his repentance. Now, Jesus doesn't actually call him again to follow. But the word follow is in the text because it says that they followed him in verse 11. But now he follows with a fuller submission. Now he's left all. Now he has the promise of Jesus from now on. We're going to start a whole new episode. You've passed into a whole new episode of life because from now on, you're going to catch men. Not just fish for them, you're going to catch them, my friend. Disciples must learn to 
that God blesses them when they obey. And they can let go of the security of the past and embark on a new phase of life devoted to reaching people for him. That's a fearful step for many. And we understand that. But you know something? I've always viewed evangelism as a fearful thing to do. And you don't, you don't get the job of evangelism done unless, and missions done, unless you're willing to take a risk and trust God for something. It just seems that it always comes at a cost. It's never convenient. It's convenient to fish in my backyard, but I'm not going to catch anything there. You've got to go where the fish are. That's the first rule of fishing. And to do that means you step out on faith and leave some things behind. I know a man who's leaving a a very lucrative position with a very well-established industry that his family owns, and he is going to take the position of pastor to reach his community and leave the money behind. I know a man who's in this room today, very well-educated man and worked on the the missile program in the former Soviet Union. And when given the opportunity to pursue that even further, a lot of money in the country of China turned it down so that he could direct a ministry of evangelism. God got a hold of his heart in his home country. Job doesn't get done without a price being paid, and that price takes faith. I'm taking a a group from my church to uh, Ghana, West Africa this summer. And uh, that's kind of a foreboding thing, I think, for them. And I saw that when we met the other night to talk about some of the details and outline the trip for them. And they had questions about security and illnesses and sicknesses and terrorists and uh, airplane crashes and, uh, you know, all the things that you think about when you're going to a place like this and all the what ifs. And uh, I think my closing words to them, (laughs) I began to see the fear welling up as they say, Look, this is going to be an experience of faith from beginning to end, from trusting God for the money to trusting God for your safety to getting back home again and keeping the terrorists away. This is, but that's the way that world outreach gets done. It gets done no other way. You've got to trust God all along the way. A fourth principle is from some familiar passages to us, and we'll start with Luke chapter 9. And, you know, we can't go through every bit of it, but Luke 9, 23 encapsulates it so well where Jesus says to Peter and the other disciples, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, that's the invitation of discipleship, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Three things Jesus says here, to deny himself, to say no to our own desires in order to do the will of God, to take up his cross, I take it to mean be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ, bear some of the price that of uh, identifying with him, and then follow him. Again, submit our wills to him in a life of obedience. principle here is that disciples should put God's will first, no matter what the cost. There are many other conditions he gives. For example, later in Luke, in chapter 14, he says, unless you hate your father and mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, your own life, you can't be my disciple. What's he saying? Unless you love me above everything else, supremely, you can't be identified as my disciple. There's a lot of conditions to discipleship, all of which tell us that there is a cost that must be paid if we're going to be called disciples. And at some point, Jesus is going to ask us to make this, pay this price, to experience the cost of discipleship. Deny yourself, 
take up your cross, follow him. I like what one commentator said. He equated it to going on a journey. He said, uh, that's like someone saying farewell to people, taking up their luggage, and then getting on their journey. It shows a departure with the past. The most interesting thing about this, perhaps, is the context in which it was given, because in the context, Jesus had just predicted that he was going to die and be raised again. They didn't understand the resurrection. They barely understood the death if they, if they did, really. Of course, we see that Peter didn't, but it comes on the, on the heels of his confession, uh, his prediction of his death. And then Peter's confession later about in chapter 8 about when he asked them, who do people say that I am? In, in, in Mark's version, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him and calls him blessed. And then a little while later calls him Satan. Because Peter didn't understand God's ways and that God's ways meant that there was a price that often had to be paid. Peter thought the cross could be circumvented without a price, and perhaps he thought discipleship could be circumvented without a price as well. So when we look at Luke 9, Luke 14, Matthew 16, Mark 8, we see Jesus saying, look, I'm going to pay a price, and by the way, here's a price that you can pay. And he gives them some conditions for their discipleship. Desire is not enough to be a disciple. It takes a price. How many kids do you know that want to grow up to be a professional athlete? How many do you know that will? Not many are willing to pay the price, are they? And there's a heavy price attached to that kind of career. And Jesus, of course, tries to tell them that there's a promise of life attached to this. If you try to save your life, you'll really lose it. If you lose your life for me, you'll really find it. What life is really all about. It's kind of a paradox. You die to yourself, you really live. Someone said, when life ceases to be the issue, life becomes the reality. And so Peter is promised a reward of a full life, finding the essential life that God offers him. Those who willingly deny their desires, those who willingly suffer persecution for Jesus Christ, those who follow him in submission, those who pay that price, know the cost of discipleship, are given a life experience that they probably would never try to compare to their previous life. I know a fellow who was marched out of his home at gunpoint, not allowed to pack a thing, and now he's making a great impact on the nation of India. His life has been multiplied so many times beyond what he ever could have had if he clung to his own life. So I think disciples should learn to put God's will first no matter what the cost. Let, let them know the cost of discipleship. It's so tempting not to want them to pay the price because you see that it's going to cost them something. You want to keep them from maybe quitting their job or making that sacrifice, but your faith is weak. We want to protect them. God wants to bless them. In John chapter 13, there's another principle. We'll have to make a little faster time here. John chapter 13, you have this well-known incident where in the upper room, Jesus tells them he's going away, and he says it in an interesting way in verse 36. 
He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. There's the word follow. Emphasized, really. And Peter says, hey, why can't I follow you? I'm going to lay my life down for you. And then Jesus predicts that he's going to deny him. He's going to fail. Peter is confident that he is not going to fail his Lord. And that's probably exactly what led to his downfall. Peter stepped on a banana peel, a spiritual banana peel. And the rock turned to sand for a while. But I want you to notice something interesting that I noticed in this passage, both in, both in chapter 13 and in chapter 18, when it talks about the actual denial, that this word follow keeps coming up over and over again. It's such that even in the midst of his denial, we see that Peter is still following. Not perfectly, but still following. He did go to Caiaphas' house. He did, but it was at a distance. In fact, that's a, a common theme in, in, in John, isn't it? This secret disciple, you know, Nicodemus didn't follow so openly. Joseph of Arimathea doesn't. And, and now Peter even follows secretively. But when you look at John chapter 18, after Jesus' arrest, it says in verse 15 that Peter followed Jesus. So he is following, isn't he? Even in the midst of his failure. And so did another disciple. Another disciple identifies Peter as a disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. Verse 16 talks about the other disciple. The servant girl questions him in verse 17. Are you one of this man's disciples? I find it kind of an ironic question. Well, is he or not? Peter's not willing to step up and say yes, but we're reading the story that he is following, though at a distance. Sometimes discipleship and all of its forward progress involves a step backwards when we falter or when we fail. But Jesus, in the midst of all of that, is already at work to restore us. We know that, not from John, but from Luke chapter 22, where he says in verse 31, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Get the chaff. He wants to get the, the good stuff. We all have chaff and we all have wheat in us. But Jesus said, I've already prayed for you. I'm going to pray for you. I am praying for you. And afterward, you're going to strengthen your brethren. He saw a restoration for Peter. Part of discipleship is taking the course failure 101, I believe. Some of the most valuable lessons in life can be learned when we pause and have those periods of stalling spiritually. As one of my professors said, you will fail in the area of your greatest strength. Satan's boots don't creak. Comes up without a warning. And usually gets us in what we think is our greatest strength. Oh, how he likes to suck us down that tube. I remember hearing a story from the late Dr. John Walford himself over the only meal I really ever enjoyed with him or ever had with him. Uh, I've only had one meal with Dr. John Walford, enjoyed it thoroughly, and this is a story he told me. He said he preached one of his first sermons in a church in Fort Worth, and um, Dr. Schaefer's widow came up to him afterwards, and she said, John, that was a mighty good sermon, but I guess the devil's already told you that. <laughs> yeah, Satan will creep up on you and he'll hit you in an area that you may be just the most proud of. 
Peter was proud of his strength, his assertiveness, but what led to his downfall? Pride, prayerlessness, presumption that he could defend Jesus with a sword. But it tells us that he was restored and he was forgiven. And there at Caiaphas' house, when he saw Jesus and Jesus looked at him, it says that Peter just crumbled and wept bitterly. Wept bitterly. Why? Because Jesus was scowling at him? No, because Jesus was looking at him with a look of grace. We have to help disciples see that when they fail, Jesus looks at them with a look of grace and forgiveness. And that they haven't blown it. They're still on the path of discipleship, maybe a slight detour, but they're still in that general direction and making progress if they can only see as God sees. And then as Jesus said, strengthen your brothers after this. Chuck Swindoll says, before God can use a man greatly, he must hurt him deeply. Got this line from a Louis L'Amour novel. I don't even know the situation, but Louis L'Amour novel. He says, there will come a time when you believe everything is finished. That will be the beginning. God never tires of new beginnings. I'm trying to convince some a young man I know who's experiencing a divorce, and he thinks he's a total washout and failure. I'm trying to, and I'm seeing God do wonderful things in his life. I'm trying to convince him that, no, this is just a part of your following Jesus Christ right now to deal with this and let God make something good out of it when his life, wife has left him. Failure is a cul-de-sac in our journey. It's not a, a detour. It's not, it's not a cul-de-sac. It is a detour in our journey. We can find our way out of the reeds and out of the backwaters. Disciples shouldn't let failure discourage them, but teach them about God's grace. And then disciples should serve God in their own unique ministry. In John chapter 21, we come to the final episode in John's life that we have record of. And it's a wonderful story of restoration where Jesus restores him, asking him three times, just as Peter denied him three times. He asks him three times, do you love me? Whatever the words mean, note one thing, that the main qualification Jesus was looking for in someone who would serve him is not, Peter, will you walk on the water for me? Peter, will you defend me with a sword? Peter, do you still believe that I'm the son of God? Peter, do you love me? And Peter, so shaken by his, I think, past failures, is reluctant to answer that very confidently. In fact, he's out fishing again, back to what he knows and can count on. But Christ focuses his attention on this main issue. Do you love me? And if you do, then will you take care of my sheep? Will you serve me in feeding my sheep? Peter was restored to ministry, and he's told to follow Jesus in chapter 21 and verse 19. When he tells Peter how he's going to die, in verse 18, you're going to have your hand stretched out, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And John tells us this is Jesus telling him how he's going to die, telling Peter how he's going to die. And in verse 19, he says, follow me. Oh, how obvious it is that follow me can't be an invitation to salvation. How ridiculous of you that is. Here at the end of his life and at the, at the beginning of, and at the end of Peter's discipleship, right near graduation, Jesus is still telling him to follow him. And then Peter looks over his shoulder and sees John. What about this guy? And Jesus says, don't worry about that guy. In other words, how's he going to die? 
quite different from you, Peter, by the way, but don't worry about that. Verse 22, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And there's a lesson there that we should serve God in our own unique ministry. Peter, you're not John. His fate is different from yours. His ministry is going to be different from yours. His writing, we know, is going to be different from yours. And our ministries are different from one another. A new lesson that Peter learns in following, that God has a specific task for him. It started out so generally, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's a general statement. But now, Peter, I want you to follow me in your own specific ministry. Don't compare yourself with others. God has a unique ministry for you. We need to teach disciples that God has given them a unique personality, unique gifts, unique abilities, and they should follow God using those. I always tell my students, don't compare grades because if you do, you'll either get proud or discouraged, one or the other. What a temptation it is to compare ourselves to one another, especially pastors at a pastor's type of conference. Oh, my goodness. But God hasn't called me to be you or you me. We all can't play the French horn in the orchestra. God has given us different gifts. First Peter 4.10, as each one has received a gift, let a minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It's not vanilla grace of God. It's vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, and pistachio. All different flavors in his family. All used to serve him. I saw a poster that said, when God calls you to follow, don't look over your shoulder to see who's following. When God calls, you don't look over your shoulder to see who's following. Focus on your own gift, your own calling. Teach others to do that. Don't compare yourself to fellow seminary students, to fellow pastors and ministers. I used to think everybody, if they're really committed to God, ought to be in full-time ministry. That's an immature viewpoint. I think everybody ought to be a pastor or an evangelist. That's an immature view viewpoint, isn't it? Or a teacher. I went to my son's award ceremony for basketball few days ago, and there was a young lady there, Christian, gave her testimony, and you know what she does? She spins basketballs. She has devoted her whole life to spinning basketballs. She's one of three women in the country that can spin 10 basketballs at once. That's all she's ever done, as far as I could tell from her testimony, spin basketballs. Not me. That's what God's called her to do. She's doing it faithfully, and she's using it to share the gospel. I can't criticize her. She's following God. I think these passages in Peter's life show us that disciples are made and not born. At each stage, Peter is challenged to move up to the next stage. It's not a static thing like a photograph. It's more of a video. We see a progression. A disciple is always challenged to become more of a disciple. Jesus goes from the general call to serve him to a specific ministry in each of our lives. And each time he challenges us, it's to greater commitment or greater sacrifice or greater significance in our walk with him, greater experience of who he is and how he can provide for us. Discipleship is a direction, an orientation, and as I said, a journey. It is a committed and progressive following of Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Master. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.